people say they don't understand some things because they're not familiar with them. And I think all of us should be better at being familiar with more things. The investing world has changed. Nobody gets a pension anymore at a level that is a comfortable level for retirement. My bumps in the road tend to be where I've been doing something and then the market conditions have changed, technology's changed, and it turns out that other people are gonna do it better than me. And one of the things that I'm very focused on is that I wanna be adding value to whatever I'm doing. What are the key takeaways and must-do actions for investors? I think they need to... Private markets investments are investors can find some real value. I find the best way to learn is learn from someone who's done it before and given it a go. Hi, I'm Travis Miller, host of Grow Your Wealth podcast. Thanks for joining me here today. On these podcast sessions, we're going to talk through how uh, certain investors have navigated the bumpy road of investing, whether it be through business or investments in general. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to another insightful episode of Grow Your Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Miller, and today we're diving into the dynamic world of financial markets with a very special guest. Joining us in the studio is Andrew Bone, a seasoned expert whose journey in the financial sector spans impressive 39 years. Andrew's career is a tapestry of remarkable experiences and achievements. He's been at the forefront of financial markets since 1984, witnessing firsthand the evolution of the fast-paced industry. His recent roles include Head of Westpac Credit Portfolio Training, Deutsche Bank Australia's Credit Specialist in London, and Head of Fixed Income at Mason Stevens. He's had a fascinating career. He's been involved in countless transactions, both primary and secondary, and has developed extensive relationships with Australians' corporate and financial issuers over the course of his career. Stay tuned as we delve deep into Andrew's insights, experiences, and strategies. Welcome, Andrew, to Grow Your Pod Wealth Podcast. Thanks, Travis. Right, let's start at the beginning. Uh, give us a spotted summary of who you are and what you're currently doing. Yes, so um, who I am is an old bloke, obviously, <laughs> having had 39 years in markets. Very fortunate to be around the time when the Aussie dollar was floated a long time ago. Um, the Aussie dollar is coming up to its 40th anniversary of float. And over those years, I've been involved in the foreign exchange market, fixed income market. I've been on the lending side. I've been an asset-backed originator. And um, in that uh, long career, fortunately, I've been able to keep most of the information that I'm, I, I learned. And then I've also been able to move as the market's moved into a range of different types of things. So one of the um, most important things that I think banking used to do that it doesn't do is solve problems for clients. And I think these days banks are very focused on extremely uh, efficient in their own view of efficiency uh, delivery of products that suit them and not so fantastic at products that suit their borrowing clients or in that, for that matter their investing clients. And if you add to that the recent changes in superannuation that have created the Your Future, Your Super structure that basically is driving everybody to index returns and trying to take, uh, I guess, excess or super returns uh, out of super and turning them into mediocre returns <laughs> uh, means that there is quite an absence of people thinking about what is actually best for the investor as opposed to what is in best best for them or for their uh, for their um, 
ability to to gather funds under management. Got you. And what are you currently doing now? So uh, at iPartners, we have just launched a new fund, and the new fund is a bond fund, which is, I guess, swimming against the trend because most people have been going into private credit, and private credit's fantastic. One of the great things about private credit is it's got floating rates, and floating rates means you don't get that sort of, uh, I guess, hazy difference between having money at risk to interest rate movements as well as at risk to whomever you've lent to. But the other thing that that has meant is that, uh, as I said, a lot of the managers who are under a Your Future, Your Super regime have found a pocket of the market very difficult for them to operate in because it tends to require a little bit more patience and a little bit more hold to maturity uh, thought process. So at iPartners, we've generated a uh, bond income fund which is going to deliver, um, our aim is to deliver the cash rate plus 3 to 4%. Uh, with 80% of the underlying investments being investment grade from one of the three major credit agencies. Sounds good. And what problem do you see yourself as solving with this fund for investors? Well, I think one of the things that investors were probably not prepared for is the concept that their defensive asset class, i.e. fixed income, actually went down in value when interest rates rose. And probably exacerbating that, also their equities went down. I think people had been used to the idea that if you buy a bond, that will go down, but your equities will go up and you'll be okay. And of course, that has changed markedly, I think, since the excess liquidity that's come into markets post the GFC. We now see the bond yields are actually quite linked to where equities are. And I think if anyone said today, gee, if rates were 2 or 3% lower, do you think equities would be up or down? I think everyone thinks equities would be up. And what that's telling us is that old correlation has gone away. So one thing that floating rate does is it delivers you a really, if you're looking in the, in the right sphere, it delivers you a really neat return and you don't have this variability in your index, in your unit price based on the idea that interest rates are moving up and down. Gotcha. Sounds good. And now what do you see uh, the secret to maintaining a competitive advantage with this fund? Look, I think competitive advantage is that we as a business are a solution providing business and there's people out there who have constructed their businesses to be a funds management business. And I think mm. there's two quite different dynamics in that. I think where we are at the moment is we have great dialogue with borrowers. We help borrowers get on their feet and get up into um you know, the mainstream, and that's a very fertile area for iPartners. At the other um, uh, end of the market, which is the public market deals, we have the ability to look through and understand what are the drivers for success of a particular style of investing, whether it's in consumer receivables or in the housing market. And we think about it in a way it, that is a little different because we don't focus on what everybody else in the market is going to do with that bond over the life, we think about whether that bond is going to contribute to the returns that we've said to our, our investors they're going to receive. So we have a much more long-term view on it than some managers who I think are still very focused on the idea of trading and avoiding having mark-to-market mark -mark movements, whereas our intention is to gather income, to get that income to the clients on a regular basis. Yep. Now, 
taking a little bit of a step back into the personal life, a lot of our listeners like to understand the backstory. Do you want to take us back to when it all started? What about the first first job moving into your school? Yeah. Well, it actually sort of probably starts before that. Um, I was at uh, university and, um, you know, inconveniently but successfully for me, um, I uh, met a girl and uh, I decided that being in university in a different city wasn't a good idea. So I moved up to Sydney um, from uh, university in Canberra and my family's from Sydney anyway. But the reason why that was relevant is the girl's father was actually one of the innovators in money markets in Australia and he brought one of the English brokers into Australia to set up a business. He was a stockbroker himself. I was doing economics law he said, I'll come in for a work experience day one day. And I went into the stockbroker's office and no disrespect to other stockbrokers. And I'm talking about the 80s here. <laughs> it was full of stuffed shirts telling everybody how delicious their canapes were on Saturday night. And it was a little bit on the dull side, to be fair. And then I walked around the corner to the money broker that they had a, a joint venture with. And as I walked in the door, I could see a phone lying smashed on the ground. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this seems like it's going to be a bit more interesting. And uh, the guy who was running the firm sat me down, told me how he'd been reading The Economist this morning and that in the afternoon they were expecting a movement from a big trade flow and that they as brokers were going to take advantage of it. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. And then um, the, uh, the Hawke government decided to float the Aussie dollar uh, only a, a little while afterwards, uh, which opened the door for people like me who actually didn't know a huge amount but knew more than most people <laughs> Uh, and so I was able to join the markets at a pretty young age. How, uh, how old were you then? I was 20 and I was two months before my final economics exams to get my economics degree. And I never finished the law degree because I started full-time work, um, managed to pass those end-of-year exams, fortunately, and uh, it all went from there. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please subscribe on whatever platform you're using. It helps us build a community. We want to educate investors and this is what it's all about. And you've got a political background as well? Well, you say political background. I certainly have had a lot of exposure to politics. My father was in parliament for 21 years and um, it's a tough job. And, um, you know, I often say that, uh, that children of politicians are asked whether or not they want to go into politics. And to be honest, it's just a really different world when nearly half all the people want to disagree with what you have to say at every point in time. The lovely thing about being a trader is at the end of the day, you can see whether or not your decision was a good idea. And if it wasn't a good idea, you change it tomorrow. <laughs> um, not the way that politics works. So I've never really been able to fold into that. But it was a fascinating thing to be involved in politics, um, well, peripherally, um, especially as my father entered parliament in the uh, year that the Whitlam dismissal occurred. So it was a pretty uh, amazing time for a young person. That's good. Interesting. Um, and from the career, right? So you started obviously um, quite, quite young in the money market space. How did it evolve effectively right up to where you are today? Well, I think one of the things that I've always done is the, uh, the thing that's kind of new and interesting and it's funny as an old bloke to actually still be doing that in my career. But what I um, transitioned from money market into foreign exchange, um, because at the time, you know, the job market was was pretty exciting for someone who, who was early on. The, the markets was, were beginning. I moved from money markets to foreign exchange and then um, I moved back into the money markets. So I'd had um, 
four jobs in my first, uh, uh, I think, three years of, of working career. And then I got uh, approached by somebody that I knew in the market for a job at Westpac, which actually combined a bit of foreign exchange information with a bit of money market information. It was basically funding Westpac's offshore balance sheet, so the US dollar balance sheet. Uh, and that was uh, a pretty good um, way of transitioning into Westpac. And of course, Westpac in the 1980s was a pretty famous institution in the FX space. It was on the news pretty much every week and sometimes more often than once a week. And we had a lot of interesting things that we were doing. And we were, mm. I think at the time, actually in that problem solving space. And I moved through Westpac in a lot of different roles. Um, and then uh, by 2000, I was working in structured credit. And um, an another ex-colleague uh, from Deutsche Bank approached me and said, look, you're doing structured credit at Westpac. How would you like to come and do structured credit at Deutsche Bank? And I think you have to be pretty defensive to say, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. So mm. I went to Deutsche Bank. Um, I then, you know, had a, a really fascinating time up until the, um, the time of the GFC. If you've ever seen the movie The Big Short, I was actually quite close to one of the characters who's in the movie. Um, it's not just based on a real person. It's a real person. They just changed his name. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating to be uh, associated with what was going on there. Uh, and then as time goes by, you realise that all these things you've done in your background have actually delivered you quite a lot of things that are interesting and useful. Mm. Um, so I ended up back at Westpac, which was a strange thing. And I, I was now in charge of the trading side of the over $100 billion corporate institutional bank loan portfolio. Um, and again, you know, at the time we were doing things in the credit derivative space that for most people was, was not just difficult, was, was crazy. But in fact, uh, the credit derivative space just after the GFC was an incredibly important way of managing risk. And it made me realise that even if the headlines or the, the, the zeitgeist is saying that the thing that you're doing is not appropriate. In fact, you build it correctly, it can be very appropriate. And so I think that's really where my background has led me to now. I think about the things that are missing and I think about how appropriate to fill those. And I think at iPartners, we're in an awesome position to do it because we're not trapped into some of those uh, mandate and or um, business lock-ins that have occurred in a lot of other parts mm. of the financial markets. Sure. Yeah, it's a partner's very solution-focused business. And tell us in your uh, career, I know you mentioned you were out to dinner with a couple of ex-Westpac colleagues the other day. Tell us about the social side of being in banking and, and is it important or not important to your career? So I think one of the key things in my career and um, – you know, uh, need to give uh, a, a fair note that Travis and I used to work and sit next to one another at Deutsche Bank years ago. So one of the things, one of the features of my career, which is now long, is that I don't think I've ever moved from one place to another where the people I was working with didn't already know me very well. So the socialisation, socialising that you're talking about, I think is goes well beyond the idea of, you know, both of you enjoying a, a pint of beer. I think it goes to the way that you can operate together and where your skill sets can be 
contributing to the overall skill set. And one of the things that I'm very focused on is that I want to be adding value to whatever I'm doing. And I want to think that the skills that I'm bringing are something that will benefit where I am. And I think that when you have had relationships with a lot of different people that you've maintained over the years, people do get to know what you do and they do get to know where the skill set that you bring to the table might actually be something that can really kick along a business or, or refine it. So I think that whole idea of the collegiate nature of the way that markets have operated is actually critical to the way you can build a franchise that actually doesn't rely on one person, but relies on a network. And I think that's the best operation that you can have. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in particularly in Australian market, very relationship driven, that's sort of who you know, who you can introduce, who can introduce you. Yeah. And I think the other thing about that is it's all very well to be a backslapper, but the thing to do is not just to be there to introduce people, mm. but for people to recognize that what you're doing is going to be of value as well. Um, I because I think in some other markets, the, uh, the idea that you've just hung around for a long time is enough of itself. But I think in Australia, it is a smallish market. And so if you're not really actually adding any value, you do get found out. That's very true. Okay. Now, a couple of things, um, you know, again, career-wise or personal life, two to three pivotal moments uh, that led you to where you are today. Well, look, I think you can't underestimate luck in life. Uh, and I have a friend and I say, oh, I've been lucky in my career. And he goes, no, you were lucky on a couple of occasions, but your career is what you made of the luck. Mm. And I think about that a fair bit. I think, you know, I did get my job at Westpac because I happened to bump into the bloke who ended up employing me while I was going there for a different job. Mm. Um, so that was luck. But at the end of the day, um, the guy who I bumped into knew me and had a position that he thought that I would be great for. So um, I think those sorts of things, those elevator moments are really important. But I think the thing that has led me uh, most over the last 10 years has been when I was uh, still in that role at Westpac, I took on an extra role, which was the head of the derivative reform project, which was the reaction by the G20 nations to the GFC and how they wanted to change derivative regulation effectively to stop banks doing stuff. Now, what they ended up stop banking banks doing is actually being flexible enough to provide a lot of solutions. So in that derivative reform project, what my role was to make sure that Westpac's businesses could survive this legislative change, but also survive all the soft, touchy-feely things that regulators want you to do. And I had to have conversations with people like the CFTC in the US, which is the major uh, uh, securities regulator, um, uh, commodities and futures exchange regulator. I had to have conversations with the Bank of England. And then I worked with the Australian Council of Regulators, which is APRA and RBA and ASIC. And I think the thing that, that, that showed me is that you actually have a very tenuous capacity to uh, be the, the, the controllers of your own destiny when you're in a very heavy, re heavily regulated area. And that's absolutely fine, but it does mean that people have to change what they are doing in order to meet regulation instead of to do what is the right thing. <laughs> so for the last 10 years, I've been thinking about what are the right things that should be do being done that just aren't. 
And I think the number one thing in Australia that's not being done well is preparation for retirement and retirement incomes. In Australia, we still, even though we give lip service to changes to the standard allocation, we still allocate 60 to 80% to risky assets that have a lot of volatility as opposed to um, coupon or interest rate-based returns that have much less volatility. And I think that's a major failing for the retirement savings system in Australia. We're taking down a lot more risk than we even think we're taking down, mainly because we're familiar with it, mm. not because we've thought about it. And I think one of the lovely things about joining iPartners is that iPartners is actually offering an alternative to where people think they're going to earn in the equity market by developing really interesting product that pays equity-like returns but has much more stability and is much easier to actually capture what's the thing. I've always wondered about, you know, buying shares in any company is all very well. You know what the company does now, but you never know if Michael J. Mouse is going to be the next chairman. And that's something that's quite different in the lending space because in the lending space, you have rights over the chairman, not the other way around. Yeah, exactly right. Now, who are the top three people who influence you the most and why? So I'd say that the number one and two were both very early in my career. So I worked with a guy who was an absolutely fascinating guy um, in, in – uh, uh, the early 80s. He was my boss. He had an incredible backstory. He actually had a tattoo on his arm, but not because he was Jewish. He was Polish and his father was a political dissident. And he'd been in a concentration camp when he was three. And he really taught me about thinking outside orthodoxy. And he was a terrific boss because he gave me license to do what I needed to do. But he also gave me the desire to be thinking, not just what do I need to do so that my um, tasks at the end of the day can all be ticked off, but what do I need to do that is actually the best thing to do? Hmm. And he was a really important influence to me. And then the next one was a broker. Uh, and this broker was... Uh, incredibly generous. Now, it may have been because I was one of the major four banks at the time and it was pretty handy for him mm. to be generous to someone who could actually end up paying the bills. But he was one of those people who never really operated on the information is power basis. He wanted me to do well because he knew that if I did well, I'd be doing more business and he would do better as well. And that was a really important thing for me to think about as well. I think very often in a bureaucracy, in a, in a big business, you find people who operate as if information is power. And I think that is a terrible, terrible thing for an entity to do. Uh, I think entities should be as collegiate as possible. And I think that I've always assumed that everybody else in the room is smarter than me. I just happen to know more stuff at the moment, mm. but I should be helping the people smarter than me to do well because the tide raises all boats. And I think that, you know, trying to, to put yourself in the background a little bit in, in rather than establish to everyone, you know, how, how smart you are, I think is a really important thing that I learned from him. And then the last, uh, the last one is somebody who um, has been my boss. He's been your boss. And he and I started working together at Westpac in the late 1980s. 
And I would say he is one of the smartest people I've ever come across. He was our boss at Deutsche and he had an amazing ability to uh, distill information quickly. He had a fantastic trader's brain. He was a political animal. He worked 20 hours a day and seemed to enjoy that. Mm. And his influence on me was that we were fortunate to work with him being in charge because he helped all of us succeed. He helped all of us to get done what could be done. And in fact, the Deutsche Sydney office was extremely well regarded globally because of the way that we actually managed in, a, in what is ultimately an investment bank in a dog-eat-dog world. We managed to be collegiate, but we were collegiate under a guy who was, you know, a terrific resource. And I think he taught me two things. Firstly, he taught me I never really want to be in charge because I don't want to work as hard as he yeah. does. And secondly, that the important thing around um, having having structures that actually help you because our structure in Australia was so much better than the structure most of the people in Deutsche globally worked under. Yeah, it was an amazing time. Very successful business. Now, what's worked and hasn't worked across your career? Sort of bumps in the road. I think the key bump in the road, bumps in the road that I've always had is um, when I could see that there were people who were more thorough than me who were coming uh, into a space where I may have had, had been an early adopter, but they were coming up and they were going to be able to do it um, more efficiently than me. So I think self-knowledge is important in that. So my bumps in the road tend to be where I've been doing something and then the market conditions have changed, technology's changed, and it turns out that other people are going to do it better than me. Uh, and so then you have to think about where is your place in the world? What are you actually able to do? And so a bump in the road can be quite devastating, um, but a bump in the road can also give you the opportunity to um, think about the things that you are actually good at. Um, and when I go to work, the thing that I'm good at isn't the job that I'm sitting down at at the day. The thing I'm good at is all those things that are in the background that help me do the job I sit down at every day. And if you consign yourself to being a, uh, a 10 year government bond trader, um, that's a pretty limiting thing. But if you consign, if you make yourself somebody who's interested in the yield curve, there's a whole different opportunity. So I think that's an important bump in the road. And I think the other was when I was um, last at Deutsche Bank, they, they decided to juniorize. And so in, and just at the time that COVID occurred, Deutsche decided that um, three of us who were at uh, the director level in the credit sales business were no longer required. And that was a pretty tough thing to do um, because obviously at COVID time, it was not automatic. There was going to be other jobs to do. Mm. And I think, again, you know, if you, if you let a bump in the road throw you sideways, and I did have friends who, not, not from that particular group, but other people who had difficulties around the same time, who found their self-worth were really, was really challenged. And I think what I sought to do at the time was to try and learn some new skills and try and do some things that I'd not done before. Um, and I think that's kind of the way that, that I like to address those bumps in the road. What did you learn? Well, I, I started working with a, an, an incredibly um, smart pair of guys who were trying to bring a hedge fund together. Sure. 
And these these two guys I'd known for a really long time. I worked with one of them, but I worked with uh, worked alongside one of them. But I've worked with on a on a client or counterparty basis the other one as well. So I knew them both extremely well. And it's not an easy thing to get a hedge fund up. And we were thinking about a lot of things. So I really deepened my thoughts around asset allocation, around volatility in portfolios, around the ability to understand what risk budgeting should mean to people. Um, When we think about the difference between a pension and your own super fund, in fact, there's no difference between a pension and your own super fund. Somebody's balance sheet is funding your retirement. Now, it's either General Motors and they're selling more cars the older you get in order to pay your salary, or it's you managing your own balance sheet with your investments in the background. And so starting to think about the way that we as investors should think about our investments on a much more on a balance sheet basis, thinking about the liability. And the liability is wanting to continue to eat T-bones instead of whiskers. (laughs) It's good. Okay, what are your tips for driving long-term wealth? Good intro to that one. Yeah, well, I think that the idea of volatility is is very um, um, under-emphasised for most Australian investors. And I think they're, they're used to volatility. And I think if you say to somebody... Look, I'm uh, I'm going to offer you something in the debt space. They go, oh no, debt's really risky. You can lose all your money. You say, well, you understand that if I do debt in Santos, that the equity holders of Santos have to be wiped out completely before I lose a penny. It's something that isn't automatically obvious to them. And then if I say to them, you know, the volatility around the Santos share price is fifteen or twenty percent, given you know, in a in a tough year. And it doesn't really matter to them because they're quite used to it. So Mm. they're familiar with the idea of investing in equities and they feel unfamiliar about investing in credit. So I think we need to up the familiarity with the alternative ways of building wealth. Um, You know, some of the iPartners double-digit returns, you know, if you earn double-digit returns and reinvest your coupons, you double your money in six or seven years. Now, in the equity market, if you said to somebody, "I'll give you a double," uh, I'll give you a double of your of your um, equity amount in six or seven years, they'd be pretty delighted to have that. Well, with with debt product, you get that without the intermediate ups and downs. Mm. Um, so I think building familiarity with things that you are not familiar with, where um, we can really make a difference to to the way people think about what is going on in their retirement. I think. There is too much in those price variable um, allocations in the Australian retirement space. So at iPartners, where we continue to do things that are stable, we've, we're running you know programs around uh, protected equity loans and things like that that give us the opportunity to, to give people some exposure to a more risky asset, but without all the downside. There's a whole range of different opportunities that we can deliver to people that they are at the moment less familiar of than they should be. So I think building familiarity across the actual universe of investments is probably the key way of building long-term wealth. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you want to learn more about alternative assets, there's a book here you can read, How You Grow Your Wealth at Alternative Assets. Now back to the episode. I totally agree. I mean, something that I partners were passionate about is education. This podcast exists, Grow Your Wealth, just so we can help 
investors understand, you know, what's out there and hear different opinions on, on investing. So totally agree with you. Now, pivoting back to your new fund, um, you know, where did the idea come from as a starting point? And so at Westpac, um, I ran a hundred billion dollars and there were a couple of really interesting things about that portfolio. Firstly, the portfolio was very much an internally rated portfolio, which is the job banks do. But on our internal ratings, I think that you'd have to say that the middle of the bell curve was at the triple B level, not where the majority of corporate bonds are in the Australian bond market, which is more at the A level. And we're also incredibly overweight financials in the Australian bond section. So if you think about corporate Australia, it's a triple B, it's a triple B uh, universe or triple B dominated universe. And then I thought about, you know, how easy is it for investors to actually get that universe or that style of risk into their portfolios? The answer is really the things that are being put into portfolios aren't much in that triple B-ish space. The way you get yield in Australia is you go and buy a listed hybrid that pays a number that you then have to wait until you get your tax return to get your total return. Or they might buy some um, financial tier two paper, which again, you know, it pays an okay return, but it's not, not shooting the lights out. And it is putting you at a much less advantageous position of the um, balance sheet than if you're in the senior debt space. And I just thought, wow, you know, there are, there are things out there that are a little bit unfashionable that haven't got that many people focused on them that are actually delivering an awesome return. And so I've been thinking about that for some time. When I was at Mason Stevens, um, we had some portfolios that did that. The structure of the portfolios was a little bit um, unwieldy for me. Um, and, and I left Mason Stevens sort of thinking about, well, I still think that there's an opportunity to deliver a, a really strong product to clients. Um, and so obviously I do have, um, you know, deep relationships within the iPartners group, you know, from before I joined. And I think it kind of dovetailed a little with the way that iPartners has developed a fantastic investor base. And one of the things that we can do for the investor base is actually take a little bit of the deal pressure off them where we typically ask them to look at a transaction, decide if they want to invest and give them the opportunity to say, hey, actually, this is my return target. Could you please deliver that to me within, this, within these parameters? And I think it dovetails very nicely into the iPartners world, as I said earlier, because iPartners isn't burdened by some of the, um, the, the structural impediments that you have in some other um, people who are managing money. Gotcha. Yep, makes total sense. And what do you do differently and why would investors invest with you? So I don't want this to be perceived as a piggy bank fund. It's a design to deliver return. I think that it's best to be thinking about two to three years in the, in the fund. That's what the underlying bonds are going to have in terms of, of um, the average life is going to be somewhere in the two to three years. I don't think it works as a piggy bank. I think it works as something that's going to deliver a return to you very consistently over the, that two to three years. So firstly, I'm not going to be thinking about 
where other people in the market value this bond in 12 months or three months or one month's time. So I don't want to be massively trading. I want to acquire assets that we have confidence in are going to deliver the return that they say they're going to deliver. And in some ways, that's a bit more bank thinking than it is fund manager thinking because a lot of fund managers try to establish their value process by doing a lot of trading. And I think there is, you know, you can be successful with that, but you've got to make a lot of good decisions if trading is the focus to make your return. Our decision-making is about making good decisions and we will review those decisions if things aren't going the way we expected them to be. But the key for us is to make a good decision on a contributing asset as we put it into the portfolio. And I think that it is something that really belongs in a lot of portfolios. If people have a, uh, a 10% or so allocation into the cash bucket, I think it'd be rare that they draw that down to, to less than five. So I think this is a pretty interesting way of populating some of that cash or even if you call it fixed income or income space. Because by populating it with something like this, you're actually delivering a return that at the moment, um, bills plus three to four is around 7.35 to 8.35 yield. I can't see that as disappointing many investors. I agree, and particularly with that investment grade focus you've got. So. That's right. Now, back to the personal side of things, um, what has been your best and worst investment and what did you learn? Um, so I think my worst investments have always been when I've assumed somebody else was an expert. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, if I think about the things that I've invested in in the equity space, uh, you know, a lot of them have been where there was – you know, a strong couple of research reports saying this is fantastic. This is, mm. hasn't proven to be the case. My best investments have been things where I've actually said, look, I think that we're cyclically ready to do this or ready to do that. And that's, and it's gone well because of that. I don't think I'm a particularly good equity analyst, but I think I'm a very good macro analyst and I did do economics. Uh, so, you know, fundamentally take mm. it back to that. And I think where I've, um, where I've expressed my macro view um, without sort of thinking about the noise around the minutiae um, I've done well. And when I've basically been convinced into trades by other people uh, mm. presuming to be experts is probably where I've done worst. Totally agree. And the, the, uh, the amount of tips I've got from mates on the next best equity to buy. Yeah. It has not worked out. I could list them. Exactly. On the yeah. Okay, what are the, you believe the keys to success and why? I think self-knowledge is the most important thing anyone can have. I think some people who are successful, they have decided that, that their measure of success is going to be defined in a particular way. It may well be wanting to be the boss. It may well be wanting to be the best at something. Um, but I think you need to know yourself and where you can be successful in order to be successful. And so, um, you know, when people talk to me about, you know, maybe wanting to move jobs or, you know, go to an interview, what should I say? I say, well, why would someone employ you? What are the things about you mm. that make you desirable for the, for the, for the entity? And if you don't have the self-knowledge on that, then I think you, you, you're not, really putting your best foot forward. You need to know 
where it is. I've been fortunate in my career. I've been able to do a lot of new things and I've been adaptable. And as I say, it's weird for an old bloke to say that they're good at new things, but I think I've known for a long time that that's what my, mm. that's what my focus has been. Um, I think that the other key thing that I've, I've noticed, and I think that we all recognize this, being smart's handy. Being able to execute is far more useful. Yeah, totally agree. Very good. Uh, now, to summarise conversation today, what are, you, what are the key takeaways and must-do actions for investors? I think they need to think about how much volatility they've got in their portfolios. Yep. I think volatility is accepted by people because they're familiar with it, not because they understand it. I think people say they don't understand some things because they're not familiar with them. And I think all of us should be better at being familiar with more things. I think if that was the one way, the one, one sort of message for mm. portfolios is get yourself familiar with a wider range of things rather than being locked into one particular route. Because although it's difficult to put it into, into strong context, the investing world has changed. And the reason why the investing world has changed is pretty simple. I talked about pensions earlier. Nobody gets a pension anymore at a level that is a comfortable level for retirement. The pension world in the old days was somebody else collected some money and paid you a pension that you could live on. Now we pre-save for our retirement. So Ford or GM used to have to sell more cars in the future. So they didn't necessarily collect all the money for your pension while you were working for them. Now we collect it ourselves. That means there is this massive, massive global pool of retirement savings money that's looking for a home. So in that context, the investing universe has changed permanently and it's only going to increase in terms of the impact it has on valuations and on volatility. So I think that locking yourself into what was the textbook way of investing in the old days is, is potentially not going to give you the best outcome. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening. Yep, totally agree. I mean, that's where the education comes back in the game, constantly learning. I mean, even if you've got investors have advisors, educating yourself helps you understand the advice you get from advisors better. So totally agree on that one. Um, you talked earlier about your first job. Was there a first job before the first job? What was your first job? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, that's a really interesting question. I think everyone's done paper runs, but I would say my first job as a five-year-old was keeping the dairyman company when he delivered the milk in a little um, suburb in Sydney called Woolwich and he delivered the milk on a horse and cart, <laughs> right? I am very old, but we actually had a horse and cart in Woolwich delivering the milk in the late 1960s. And um, I had an exceptionally wonderful dog who made sure that, the, uh, that everything went well. But, uh, yeah, I used to jump on the horse and cart and keep the dairyman company. You're the first person I've spoken to that had their first job at five. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. What's a piece of advice for your younger self? Um, it's an interesting one. It's a tricky one because 
if the advice was, um, you know, do you want to be richer when you're 59? Um, I would say the only advice would be is don't be true to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) But if the advice was, if you want to be satisfied at 59, I think the advice would be um, never resent the alarm clock. And so if you're locked into doing something where the alarm clock goes off and you're not enjoying the rest of your day, um, you need to think about where you're at because we are at work a lot of every week. Uh, we, we all have things that we're good at. We all have things that we don't like doing. Get yourself into a position where you don't hate the alarm clock going off. It's good. Good advice. What motivates you most as a person? Oh, look, I think it depends whether you ask me or you ask somebody else. I think I have a pathological desire to be liked, which is a bit of a failing because you can really be a bit of a tryhard when tough, you're doing that. Tough in finance and banking. Well. <laughs> That's true. But, um, yeah, no, I think, I think, um, I think that I do want to, I do want to, um, always do things in the right way in the things that that I wouldn't regret in, in hindsight. I think that's the most important thing. Gotcha. What's the most important skill for building wealth and why? Well, again, I think it's, I think it's understanding what you're uh, able to do as much as what you should do. Um, I think that the skill of investing is to understand what level of volatility you actually can bear with I think some people like to take a bit of a risk, but then when the risk becomes edgy, uh, tempted to take themselves out just at the point where they should probably be putting more in. So you really need to understand what your capacity is, particularly in the down times before you make your investment decisions. Gotcha. What's the most important habit for building wealth and why? Oh, without a doubt, the... um, superannuation guarantee has been the best habit for building wealth that anyone has ever come across. So the answer is really simple. Pay down your mortgage as fast as you can and start saving more. That's easy. That's yeah, pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. What legacy are you living and leaving? Um, I, think, I think the leaving legacy is an easier one. I think, um, you know, anyone who is a parent or who has – you know, young lives that look up at them. The legacy is the way you behave and what they expect of you and the way that they think of you. And I think my kids still like spending time with me and they're in their 30s and 20s. Um, We were all out last night at a wine tasting as it happens. Could have been because I paid the bill, but you never know. Um, But I think that legacy is important that, you know, and and, um, and what am I building? I guess at the moment I'm, I'm still trying to, make sure that when I am interacting with people, particularly people that are uh, not that experienced, that I'm not being one of those people who hoards information and that I'm helping them be what they can be. Great. When you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? Well, like is a funny word because when I'm going up a really steep hill, I don't like bike riding very much, (laughs) but the rest of the time I'm pretty much a, a cyclist. I really enjoy it. Um, I love skiing as well. Um, so outdoor kind of stuff is what really gets me, but, um, I've always been into music. I've always loved loud guitar music. It hasn't helped my hearing, but it has helped my disposition. What concert are you going to? Yeah. Robbie Williams tonight. (laughs) That's great. 
What's the biggest mistake people make when it comes to building wealth and why? I think they uh, adopt a, um, a rigid plan about what they should do. I think if you're building wealth, you need to, you need to think about what the, what the aims are at all points in time. I think the number one thing is obviously save more all the time. That's, that's a great start. But then I think you really need to think about as you go through the phases, what are the things you actually feel comfortable with and the things that you feel are actually uncomfortable and do it before it happens rather than as a reaction when it has happened. Gotcha. Really appreciate you being here today, Andrew. For listeners who want to find out a little bit more about their iPartners Bond Income Fund, visit ipartners.com.au. Thanks again. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Travis. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening.